All right. Uh, well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to our 12 p.m. service here at Citizens. My name is Jason. Uh, if you're visiting for the first time, um, would love to get to know you. Um, we have staff uh, volunteers after the service would love to uh, talk to you and help you get plugged into the church if that's what something you're looking for. Um, I guess to start, wanted to take a quick moment of silence uh, for the Dodgers. Um, you know, I'm kidding. We're not. Um, and I'm a Phillies fan, and we're doing great. So, you know, uh, we're in the NLCS, so it looks great. Um, sorry, guys. Um, and on that note, uh, we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit. That is kindness today. So uh, if you want to turn your Bibles to Galatians 5, uh, verses 16 to 25, uh, we've been looking at this as our anchor text each week um, throughout this series. Um, this same passage um, in Galatians 5, if, it's going to be on the screen behind me, but if you like to follow on your phone or in a physical Bible, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, Galatians 5, 16 to 25. And each week what we've been doing is starting from verses 22 to 25, we've been reading that together in one voice. Uh, we're going to try to commit uh, those verses to memory as we kind of recite them together throughout the series. So Galatians 5, 16 to 25, this is the reading of God's word. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let's read this together. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Amen. Let me say a quick prayer for us. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. May every word that comes forth this afternoon uh, be from your heart. And may we open our hearts and open our ears that we might listen for your voice and receive what you would have for us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, if you've been with us, you know that we're in a series right now through the fruit of the Spirit. We're going through each of the nine qualities or attributes that get supernaturally deposited into the heart of every believer uh, who receives Christ in faith. And we're told that as we continue to yield to the Spirit's work in our lives and as these attributes continue to grow within us, the end result is a life of freedom. So in week one, we talked about love as being a freedom from selfishness, joy as a freedom from hopelessness, peace as a freedom from anxiety. And last week, DC talked about patience as freedom from resentment. And today, uh, we're going to talk about the fruit of the Spirit, that is kindness. You know, I think kindness was one of the most undervalued underrated qualities in our culture uh, i haven't heard of any companies that hired someone because he or she was kind 
You know, it's a nice quality to have, but it, the question is, can you get the job done? You know, it's great if you're kind, but I want to know if you can get the job done. I used to work in college admissions, and I can tell you, we never accepted an applicant because he or she was kind. Again, a nice quality to have, but not on the top of the list. We're looking for high test scores. We're looking for uh, leadership, good work ethic, courage, resilience, and adversity. Kindness was nice, but not necessary. In fact, in our society, I think kindness is sometimes even seen as a crutch, something that gets in the way of, of productivity and success because we live in a dog-eat-dog -dog world. This world is cruel. We live in a world where we have to be ruthless. We have to be cutthroat to get ahead. You know, it's like your boss might say, you know, hey, it's great that you're so kind that you stopped in the middle of the road on the way to work uh, to help out this person with a flat tire, but you're still late, and where's the report? I remember growing up, and my tennis coach, I used to play uh, tennis, and I was in a match, and the guy served it, and he aced me, and I was like, dude, that was a great serve, and my coach pulled me aside and said, never say that again. <laughs> he was like, kindness gets you nowhere in sports. You have to be a killer, okay? That's not a winning mentality, Jason. Right? And so from a young age, I, I was taught that to be kind was, being, was synonymous with being weak or soft. And what I hope to, for us to see today um, is that kindness is actually like, not weak at all. There's nothing weak about kindness. In fact, kindness is not only one of the most defining characteristics of God himself, it just may be the single most important agent to transform the world. Um, there was an article in The Atlantic back in 2014 that talked about the science behind why certain marriages last and some don't, right? Given that at the time, only 30% of all marriages remained healthy and happy for the long haul, um, you know, a number that's way lower now. Like, people have been racking their brains around, like, what is it about these relationships that can withstand the test of time? Like, what is, is there some secret in, ingredient or quality? And, and the article highlighted the research of John and Julie Gottman, who did a really fascinating study with over 100 newlywed couples. They basically took these couples on, like, a retreat to a remote location. And, and basically, throughout the day, they would observe these couples and document every time a partner uh, made a subtle request for connection. It's what Gottman called bids. So, for example, if, like, the husband was a big bird enthusiast. Uh, the husband might say to his wife, hey, look at that bird. Like, look at that beautiful bird flying by. And in that moment, the wife has a choice. She can either receive that bid, and she can either turn toward her husband and engage by saying something like, oh my gosh, that, that is a beautiful bird. Or she can turn away by continuing to do whatever she's doing, maybe answering with like a simple uh-huh, or maybe not responding altogether. Right? And they would just observe all the hundreds uh, upon hundreds of subtle bids that were taking place throughout the day, realizing that at the end of the day, it's not a comment about birds. What the husband was looking for was some sign of interest or support. And it almost seems like kind of like a ridiculous study to do. But interestingly enough, what they found was based on the results of these interactions alone, Gottman was able to predict with up to 94% certainty whether the couple would be broken up or together and happy after six years. 94% certainty. And what he found was that it didn't matter if the couple was young or old, didn't matter if they were rich or poor, it didn't matter if during those six years they had children or not. He said what it really came down to was what he called a spirit of kindness. 
In other words, there was no more important predictor of satisfaction and stability in a relationship than the presence of kindness. Are you kind? In Scripture, kindness and love are almost always tied together. The Hebrew word for God's love in the Old Testament is the word hesed, which is often translated God's loving kindness. Right? We see this connection in the New Testament as well. In Titus 3.4, we read, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we'd done, but because of His mercy. In Ephesians 2, we read, But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And get this, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Love and kindness. In other words, the kindness of God is the practical expression of his love. It's God's love in action. Well, what does God's love in action look like? And this is going to be really important for us because it's ultimately God's kindness that's going to inform the way you and I are called to be kind as his ambassadors in the world. And really, we need to look no further than the life and ministry of Jesus, who was the loving kindness of God in the flesh. And there are a lot of things you could say about Jesus because he was the fullness of God. But if you could use one word to describe him, I think you would say Jesus is kind. He's kind. It's kind of the thing he leads with. Even in the Old Testament in Exodus, uh, when God descends on, in a cloud to meet Moses on Mount Sinai, the first words out of God's mouth are, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this is so important for a lot of us because I think, you know, there are many people in this room who grew up in the church with a view of God maybe that we inherited from our church leaders or from our parents, a view of God where he was angry all the time. He was always disappointed with us. He was always scolding us. He was always telling us what we were doing wrong and how we were falling short and how we were not living up to his standard. And we kind of grew up being scared of God. And yet what we see from the beginning of the Bible to the end is when God leads he says, if there's anything I want you to know about me, the first thing he wants Moses to know about him is that he's kind. And it's this kindness that, he, that Jesus himself embodied everywhere he went, and he embodied it in four primary ways. And if you're taking notes, these are just the four quick points. Four primary ways, with his eyes, with his ears, with his mouth, and with his hands. Okay, with his eyes, with his ears, with his mouth, and with his hands. And we're going to look at each of these to give us insight into how we as his followers are to practice that same kindness in the places we live, work, and play. Okay, so first, Jesus practiced kindness with his eyes. You know, one of the things we see over and over again in the Gospels is the way Jesus saw people and was so attentive to their needs. Like, this guy was arguably the busiest man on the planet. Everybody wanted a piece of him, and he was literally on a mission to save the world. And yet, for some reason, he always would stop and take time out of his busy schedule to notice people who were hurting. He always saw people. And the gospel writers make it a point to emphasize the fact that before Jesus did anything for anyone, he always saw them first. It seems like a really small detail, but it's always like Jesus is walking on the road and then he stopped and saw someone. He stopped and saw the woman. 
he stopped and saw the lame man. He stopped and saw. And again, it seems like such a small detail, but Jesus understood that one of our deepest longings as human beings is to be seen. We are living in a generation right now where everyone's saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. Where we're using every platform at our disposal, you know, to draw attention to ourselves. It's a cry for attention. Please, somebody notice me. Please, somebody look at me. Look at what I'm doing, hoping that somebody will see me. And one of the greatest gifts of kindness Jesus gave to people, especially those who were discarded, forgotten, and overlooked, was his attention. It was the creator of the universe saying, I see you. I know in a sea of people, you feel invisible. I know that in this busy city of L.A. where everyone's doing something, achieving something, going somewhere, going to a party, going to some function, you feel invisible, but guess what? I see you. You have my undivided attention. You know, I don't think that I can think of a, remember a time in recent memory when I felt more invisible as an Asian American in this country than I did in the wake of the Atlanta massacre that took place back in March of 2021 that claimed the lives of eight people, six of them Asian women. And it was kind of a horrible exclamation point to a year that birthed phrases like Chinese virus or Kung flu, and all of it was accompanied by this sudden surge of anti-Asian hate crimes in the U.S., and it just felt like nobody outside of the Asian American community was talking about it. There was just this collective shrug in our country about everything that was happening. And, and, and what made this kind of like what made the silence even more deafening was the fact that this was the same year that Parasite took home a few Oscars. This was the same year that we saw the meteoric rise of K-pop in groups like Blackpink and BTS. This was the same week that Minari, a story, a film about the Korean-American immigrant experience, was nominated for six Oscars. And it's, it's a different kind of invisibility that you feel when, like, one moment everyone is celebrating you and the other moment it's dead quiet. And nobody's talking about you when your community is suffering and grieving. And one of the greatest gifts of kindness that I received, especially from my non-Asian friends that week, were those who reached out via text or phone call or email and who just said, Jason, how you doing? It was their way of saying, I see you. I see you. I notice what's happening. We cannot take care of people's needs unless we see them first. You know, one of the reasons why I think that our culture is training us to be so unkind is that we live in the digital age. So we don't even have to see people to talk to them, right? We can write a comment, say something super harsh, and then walk away. We don't ever have to see how our words online is affecting the other person. We don't actually have to sit there and watch their face, like, shrivel up. We don't have to sit there and watch them just, like, look and feel so small we can just walk away. And so we can't even start with kindness unless we start to see people and uphold their humanity. You know, Jesus, in Matthew 9, 36, we read, when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He saw them first. In John 19, 26, Jesus is hanging on the cross, and we read, when Jesus then saw his mother 
and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son, and to his disciple, behold your mother. Before Jesus did anything, he saw them. His attention preceded action. And let me just give you one more example because this is the one that always gets me. In Luke 19, 41, we read, Jesus is standing in front of, the, in front of Jerusalem, and we read, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. When he saw the city, he wept over it. When was the last time you actually saw the people in your life who were hurting and wept for them? When was the last time you stopped and saw the humanity and the homeless person? You walked by every single day asking for change and wept for them. You know, parents, it's, it's really easy as a parent. Like your kids can be all around you and yet you can sometimes not see them at all. They're crying, clamoring, craving your attention, and yet we're so busy trying to be a parent that we don't even see our kids. We don't even uphold their humanity. When was the last, last time we stopped, opened our eyes, and saw people created in the image of God and wept for them? Because that's what Jesus did all the time. He saw people. But he didn't stop there. He didn't just see people. He actually listened to them. He didn't just practice kindness with his eyes, he practiced it with his ears. One of the things you notice that before Jesus heals anyone, he always asks a question, what do you want me to do for you? That's interesting, right? Because Jesus is God. He knows everything. And a lot of times, it's very obvious what they need. Because sometimes the man gets lowered on a mat through a roof. It's like, I think I know what he needs. But oftentimes Jesus is like, do you want to be healed? What do you want me to do for you? He stops and listens. You know, there, there's a story in the book of, book of John of a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years, sitting next to a pool, unable to go in. It's obvious what he needs. He needs to walk. And yet, you know what Jesus asks? He says, do you want to be healed? Why? To dignify this person's humanity. To give him agency. To listen first before he acts. We are so bad as a society at listening. Everyone wants to talk. Everyone has something to say. Everyone has an opinion. Everyone has a solution. Who will listen? Who will stop and listen? Sometimes you and I will do something in the name of kindness. We think we're being kind, and then it's not received by the other person the way we wanted them to receive it. Or they don't appreciate us, or they don't acknowledge us, and we're like, what's wrong with them? not realizing we never even asked them what they needed. We didn't even ask them what they wanted, and we assumed. Part of practicing kindness is to listen first. Part of practicing kindness with our attention is to learn the art of listening before we jump to helping and doing and solving and fixing. Our posture should model that of Jesus, to listen before we act. Okay, so number one, Jesus practiced kindness with his, uh, with his eyes. Number two, with his ears. Number three, with his mouth, with his words. You know, there are several instances in the Gospels where Jesus heals with nothing but a word. Sometimes he's not even in the same location as the person getting healed, and he heals them with a word. The centurion's servant, the Syrophoenician woman's daughter, he says, go home, and she's going to be healed shows you the power that words carry. 
I can't tell you, and I'm sure you can relate to this, I can't tell you how many times I've had the roughest week and all it takes is a few words, a text, an email, a word of encouragement. That's like a healing balm to my soul. Words have power. And in the same way that words have power to heal, they also have power to destroy. With our words, we can cut people down. We can shame them. We can condemn them. We can dismiss them. We can make them feel small. You know, it's very interesting when you look at, the, at some of the things on Paul's list of the works of the flesh in Galatians 5, fits of anger, dissensions, rivalries, enmity. So many of these things are caused by or exacerbated by words. Words can divide us and leave lasting scars on people. I counsel people every single day who are holding on to words that were spoken to them by a parent, a leader, or an authority figure when they were a child. And they still carry those words with them everywhere they go. And they tell me, every time I do this, and every time I make this decision, and every time I don't do something, I think of my mom and what she said to me that one day. I think of my dad and what he said to me. It's insane what words can do to us. Research shows that the average person speaks at least 7,000 words a day. How many of our words, how many of those 7,000 words embody kindness, compassion, and care? And how many of those words divide, destroy, and belittle? Okay, now, quick caveat. This doesn't mean that words shouldn't challenge us, right? Sometimes the kindest thing a person can do for you is tell you something that you don't want to hear, right? And I want to make that distinction between words that cut down versus words that challenge and correct, right? It's almost like, um, like a, an alcohol swab, right? It hurts, but sometimes you need it to be healed. Um, Adam Grant, who's a well-known uh, psychologist, makes a distinction between niceness and kindness. And he says, people who are nice to you aren't always being kind to you. He says, saying what you want to hear is nice. Sharing what you need to hear is kind. He says, it's really easy. A lot of people can sugarcoat feedback to make you feel good today. But what you need is people to speak honestly into your life to help you do better tomorrow. This got me because I a lot of times hide behind the veneer or the mask of niceness or I just want to be a, ni a nice guy. I don't want to ruffle feathers. But sometimes I have to ask myself the tough questions. Am I being just nice? Like, am I truly thinking about my brothers or sisters when I say this or when I do this? Or am I self-preserving? Am I protecting myself? Am I acting in their best interests or am I acting in my best interests? When you look at the life of Jesus, he didn't mince his words when he had to wake his disciples up. You know, he made sure that his disciples knew he loved them, but this is also the same guy that turned to his best friend and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Jesus wasn't afraid to say the hard things, but in the end, all of his words were ultimately used to heal, restore, and build people up, right? So he practiced kindness with his eyes, with his ears, his mouth, and finally his hands. The kindness of Jesus was never a passive kindness, but an active one. It was always a kindness that was meeting people's felt needs. Jesus didn't just post thoughts and prayers and then scroll by. Jesus didn't just ask people what they needed and say, great, and then walk away. He actually met those needs accordingly, 
right? In Matthew 14, there's a story. Uh, it's been a long day of ministry. Jesus has been healing the sick all day, so he's been doing a lot. And the sun is going down. The disciples are like, Jesus, you're tired. We're tired. They're getting hungry. You got to send them away. Send them into the villages so they can get some food. And Jesus had every right to be like, you're right. I'm tired. Let's send them away. Let them go get some food. But you know what he says? He says, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. They're hungry. You feed them. He saw a need and he met it. Jesus poured out everything he had for the sake of others. And it begs the question, how are we meeting the felt needs of those around us? There are people sitting right next to you who need kindness. In some way, shape, or form, how are we meeting those needs? Kindness isn't just saying, hey, I'm sorry to hear you're feeling lonely these days. It's saying, it's actually being the friend that that person needs. Kindness isn't just saying, hey, I'm going to pray for God's provision in your life. No, it's being God's provision in their life. It's not saying, what do you need? How can I support you? It's then actually doing the thing that they need and doing and providing the support that they need. Kindness is active. It's always moving toward people. Now, here's the problem. With all of these fruit of the Spirit, there's the flesh that's always pulling us in the opposite direction. If kindness is always turning us toward people, the flesh is always pulling us away. And why I titled today's sermon, Kindness, Freedom from Apathy, is that if by definition, kindness is the practical expression of God's love fueled by a genuine concern for others, apathy, by definition, is a lack of care or concern. It's a numbness, it's a callousness to people's needs. You know, I think a lot of times we think that as long as I'm not being overtly mean, and as long as I'm not being overtly cruel, that I'm being kind. No, no, no. The first sip of poison is the poison of apathy. It's a callousness that begins to take a hold of our hearts. You know, I would say our culture does a really good job of teaching people how to act kind, not how to be kind. We're so good now at acting kind. Like, you could write a book about how to act kind. When something bad happens, make sure you post something about it. Write up a blog post. Post up a link for people to donate. I'm not saying these are all bad, but I'm just saying we're really good at that. Documenting all of our acts of kindness. But the question is, how many of us are actually doing those things and then immediately just callous to the actual needs that are out there? How many of us just, as long as people think we're kind, feel like we don't have to be kind? And the more we do this, the more we actually don't practice kindness, but in fact practice apathy or a kind of performative kindness, our hearts just become more and more numb to people's actual needs. And this is so dangerous because the moment you become apathetic is the moment you stop seeing and listening to people. It's apathy that convinces you that someone is not worth your time, energy, and attention. You know, something I tell everyone at our church going through relational issues with their parents, with their kids, with their spouse, with their significant other or friends, is like, honestly, if you're fighting, that's not horrible. Because if you're fighting, it actually means there's still some kick. The heart is still beating. There's still some life and fire and passion. The, the moments I get really worried and the relationships that are really difficult to salvage 
are the ones that have grown cold and numb and callous. Where you have one person saying, you know what, honestly, it is what it is. He or she is not going to change, so what can you do? This is what apathy looks like. Well, how do we revive a heart that's grown cold and numb? How do we keep our hearts soft and attentive? How do we cultivate kindness in our lives? And I think it comes down to two things, pace and practice. Okay, pace and practice. First, pace. John Mark Comer uh, has a great book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. I quote it all the time. And he says, hurry is the great enemy of love. And it makes sense, right? Because when are you the most unkind to people? It's when you're in a hurry, when you're busy. This is why, you know, no offense to people who are from the East Coast, especially from New York, but this is why New York people are so mean. They're always in a hurry. They're busy. I remember the first time I got to the East Coast, I was trying to order a cheesesteak in Philly, and I got in line. You know, I like to take my time a little bit, you know, and so like, what can I get you? And I was like, huh, like, what am I feeling today? And the guy just cursed me out on the spot, and he was like, move along. And I was like, wait, uh, can I get a drink at least, a Diet Coke? And he's like, move along, right? When you're at, my, my wife and I, uh, we took our kids to Hawaii this year, and then we were getting an acai bowl, and there was this long line out the door, and I was like, man, like, this place is so busy. And what we realized was that they weren't busy. It was that, that the cashier was having, like, a full-on conversation with every person who was ordering something. But, I mean, people in Hawaii were so nice. They're so happy. They're so kind. They're always opening. They're, no, you first. No, you first. No, you first. Because the pace of life is slow. It's hard to be kind when you're in a hurry, when you're busy. Comer says, the next time you're trying to get your type B husband or wife and three easily distracted children out of the house and you're running late, just pay attention to how you relate to them. Does that look and feel like love? Or is it far more in the vein of agitation, anger, abiding comment, a rough glare? Hurry and love are oil and water. They simply do not mix. When you're in a hurry, you need things to be efficient. But guess what? Kindness and love, so inefficient, so irrational. It takes so much time. It forces you to put aside your priorities and take care of the needs of another. For many of us, our pace of life is so violently fast that we don't have time to stop and notice people. We don't have time to be kind. Like, I got a million things to do. I'm not going to stop and ask you how your weekend was. You know, it's like when people are going through grief. I know a lot of you just want to be like, hey, like, I want to sit with you, but can you give me, like, a little bit of, like, a timetable as to, like, how long you're going to grieve? Because, you know, I got a lot of things to do. But what do we know about grief? You don't know. It's indefinite. And sitting with someone through grief means things are going to get inefficient. They're going to call you at wee hours of the day. And you're going to have to be present with them when you have other things to do. But you see, kindness requires a pace that allows you to pause. It requires a pace that has some give and margin. Sometimes the kindest thing we can do for our families, our friends, and ourselves is to just slow down so we can create space to love well. Okay, so number one, pace. But along with pace, cultivating a heart of kindness takes practice. Malcolm Gladwell, who's a popular sociologist, says that being kind, contrary to popular belief, is not a trait, but it's a habit. 
It's something you have to practice and do over and over again. It's something, it's a muscle that you have to keep exercising or that muscle will atrophy. atrophy. You know, a lot of people say, man, once I make a little bit more money, that's when I'm going to be generous. You know that never happens. People who are generous with a little are generous with a lot. You know why? Because generosity takes practice. I meet a lot of people who say, oh, this season of my life is just so busy and I can't wait to get a new job or get this promotion to a different position so I can finally have some margin in my life to give people in my life attention. You think that happens when you actually get that? No, no, no. It feels weird having more time, so you fill it with other things. Generosity, kindness, compassion, care takes practice. And what makes working out this muscle particularly difficult is, one, it's not always reciprocated. And number two, we don't always see the immediate impact of our actions. I talk to a lot of people who say, what's the point of being kind? What's the point of constantly turning toward people if it feels like they're constantly turning away? What's the point of constantly making time for people, making the first move, initiating a coffee date, if they keep canceling? If they keep rain-checking on me, what's the point? What's the point of showing forgiveness and grace if the other person has no idea how they've hurt me? If they don't even realize what they've done wrong, if they don't realize how they made me feel, what's the point of doing all this? What's the point of trying to be kind in a world that seems to be getting harsher and more cruel? But you see, this is the enemy constantly pulling us toward apathy. It's true that our kindness will not always be reciprocated or appreciated or even deserved. But isn't this the very kindness all of us have received in Christ? who demonstrated his own love for us by laying down his life for undeserving sinners like you and me. A God who forgives us time and time and time again, even when we fail. A God who is always present with us in our darkest moments. A God who sits with us. A God who is always turning toward us, even when we're constantly turning away from him. He wants to be with you. A God who doesn't just love you, but a God who likes you. You know, I know that for many of us, it's hard not to feel pulled into apathy. And I know that for many of us, our hearts are not numb by choice. But maybe because of a long history of being hurt or dismissed, treated unjustly, maybe a long history of trusting people only to be disappointed by them, and our hearts just started to build calluses on itself. You know, like calluses are something very familiar to musicians. You know, when you play the guitar long enough, your fingers will start to callous, right? They start to become hard. And this world is a scary, dark, broken place that is very unkind. And when you experience that unkindness over and over again, your hearts start to just put up walls. Your hearts start, like, they create barriers. It's like a defense mechanism, protecting ourselves from ever being hurt again. And in doing so, we actually lose the ability to feel. We lose the very muscle that allows us to be attentive to the needs of others. That's why they say hurt people hurt people. And sometimes I would say what is maybe the saddest thing is that the person we become most callous toward is ourselves. The person we struggle to forgive most is ourselves. 
The person who often gets the brunt of our criticism and our hatred is ourselves. And over time, you and I can start to believe the lie that how we feel about ourselves is how God feels about us. And that's heartbreaking. You know, sometimes you're going to leave this place and some of you are going to, you know, start to be very unkind to yourself. You're going to say, I'm a horrible brother or sister. I'm a horrible friend. I'm a horrible parent. Why can't I do this right? You know, I'm a horrible worker. Why do I say those things? You know, why did I do it again? Why can't I forgive? Why is it so hard? Why am I so bitter? Why am I so resentful? And we begin to think that God looks at us and feels about us the same way. We believe God is saying, why are you like that? And in those moments, I want you to remember that God is kind. He doesn't look at you that way. It's not how he feels about us. He's a God who loved you before you did anything to warrant his love. The Bible says it's his kindness that leads to repentance. And that phrase, like, shook me up because we live in a time and, we're, and we grew up in churches that made us feel like we have to repent to experience God's kindness. We have to get right with God and right with people and we have to cleanse ourselves and, 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 and get clean before we can come and approach God and experience his kindness. And yet we read here, it's his kindness that comes first. It's his kindness that leads to repentance. It's his kindness that takes a heart of stone and melts it into a heart of flesh. It's his kindness that opens our eyes to see ourselves and others the way he sees us. It's God's kindness that speaks words of comfort and encouragement into our weary souls. It's God's kindness that always treats us better than we treat ourselves. And so the next time you're tempted to be unkind to yourself, and it's going to happen, it might be happening right now. Maybe you weren't even sure if you should come to church today because you were being very unkind to yourself. The next time you feel tempted, remember the way God looks at you. Not through the lens of your mistakes, not through the lens of your baggage and all your shortcomings and inadequacies. He looks at you through the perfect righteousness of his Son. He looks at you and loves you, not because of anything we could do or produce or muster or achieve on our own, but because of who Christ is and what Christ has done. And as we begin to experience his great kindness toward us, it will soften our callous hearts so that we can practice that same kindness to others. You know, let me just close by saying this. What has been really disheartening to see, especially in the past three years, is that Christians can be some of the most unkind people out there. You know, it's sad that sometimes our deepest hurt have come from pastors, church leaders, parents who took us to church every Sunday, friends who told us they, they follow Jesus. And it's funny when we wonder why so many people in the world see God as an angry tyrant who just wants to condemn and who's angry all the time, well, he has a pretty bad PR team. What kind of a God are we as believers bearing witness to? 
Are we bearing witness to a God who is callous to the needs of his people? Are we bearing witness to a God who is unforgiving, who shames people and discards them? Or are we bearing witness to a God who is compassionate and gracious and kind? There can be many things said about the church, and there can be many things said about citizens, but if there's one thing I hope people remember about citizens is that we're kind. More than the teaching, more than the music, more than the events, more than anything, I hope people who experience this community and come spend any amount of time with us will leave and remember the way they were treated and say they were treated with utmost dignity, value, and respect. I pray that people who come here will say that they felt seen, that all throughout the week they feel so unseen and so invisible, but when they come to church, they feel seen. I pray that people would say that this is a church where we are generous with our attention, with our words, with our encouragement, with our actions, with our finances, with our time. In a time when people can be so callous and harsh and cruel, what if we were known by our kindness? What if we were known as a people who were so attentive to the needs of others? What if we were a people who used our words to heal, not to condemn and shame, a people who were outrageously generous and forgiving? Friends, may we startle the world with glimpses of the divine kindness you and I have received freely in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being kind. It seems like such a simple quality. It's something we try to teach children at a young age. Be kind, be respectful. And yet something for some reason is so hard to grasp, especially when we walk into the real world and, and we're met with so much callousness, we're met with so much cruelty, when we see so much harshness and brokenness all around us. And sometimes we begin to internalize all of that. We begin to build calluses on our own hearts, preventing us from being kind to ourselves and to others. But Lord, in this moment, I pray that you would help us to remember that above all things, you're a kind God who looks upon us with love, looks upon us as precious in your sight. God, would you clothe us with your kindness? And though the temptation of the flesh will always be to pull us toward apathy, God, would you keep our hearts tender and soft, that we would show grace to ourselves and in turn be able to show grace to those around us. We thank you for this word. We love you and we give you praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.